Welcome to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes, an evolved perspective on life with dogs. Well, it's all Welcome to the Dog Show with Julie Forbes. Fantastic to be here today, as always. We're approaching, well, <clears throat> several months away, but relatively approaching 500 episodes, which is exciting. I was just thinking I need to start planning the dance party. Can't wait for that. Super exciting. So, um, got a great show today. I'm going to start with clarifying leadership with dogs what does it mean when you read you know alpha or pack leader does it mean that you eat your breakfast before your dog does that make you the pack leader in your dog's eyes some say yes so I'm gonna kind of hash this one out with you today I talk about it all the time with my clients and um and you know, what motivates me to talk about a lot of the things, at least training behavior related, when I do focus on that on the show, is because it's something that comes up a lot in conversation with my clients. And this is one that really consistently comes up, and there's oftentimes a lot of room for clarification on this. So I thought that I would chat with you guys about leadership with dogs and just kind of make some points that might help it make more sense if you're feeling like a little not sure what's what with that. And then I'll be playing my interview with Hope Animal Assisted Crisis Response. And they are a locally based actually organization here, Seattle area, Western Washington local, but um, visit crisis um, scenes all over the country. And, uh, you know, like natural disasters, uh, Hurricane Sandy, I believe they were at, um, and school shootings being another type of crisis that they have visited. And I thought that was timely. So I'm going to play my interview with the president of Hope Animal Assisted Crisis Response after I chat about leadership. I did want to say first hi to Eric. Good afternoon. Quick on the quick on the response. Throw it at you, Eric. How you doing? Doing okay. Yeah, it's a it's a great day to take your dog for a walk. Of course, it is a little cold here for us Seattle folks. But bundle up was the yeah, next right, part. Exactly. That I was gonna add. Yeah. You know, I'm from New England originally. I grew up in Massachusetts. Went to school in Vermont. College in Vermont. Cold. Real cold. Actually yeah. cold. And it's like in the, you know, it's like right hovering around freezing, a little below freezing here in Seattle. And we're all like, oh, it's so cold. Well, it's all about what you become acclimated it's to, true. isn't it? Yes. I am aware that it's like the, the expression, my blood has thinned. Right. <laughs> but it makes me think I was just talking with a woman in my dance class yesterday. Um, she was like, oh, I wanted to talk to you because I have a friend who just brought a dog over from the Middle East, and the dog is having a hard time in mm, yeah. the city for a lot of reasons, as one might anticipate. But one of the things that we don't think about is the is the climate that a dog would be used to, not just with right. life, ex life experience, but kind of genetically, you know? And it's like, hey, welcome to the Pacific Northwest and <laughs> in a cold snap for us. Yeah. 
Um, and she's just having this really hard time with the dog. You know, this would actually be a great show. I did a show years ago with some clients who, who adopted a Taiwanese mountain dog, also known as a Formosan mountain dog. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it's a kind of feral type dog and, a, and a, it's like sounds like a great idea. And, a, and sometimes it does work out well. And a lot of times it's hard and people don't know that that's kind of what they're signing up for. Yeah, I wonder about sled dogs after, you know, they retire if they're, you know, used to <laughs> being so warm all the time instead of out there in the mush. Yeah, maybe not want to bring them to Florida Florida right. or something like <laughs> exactly. that, you know. Yeah, yeah. And uh, to that point, better be ready to give them some exercise. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm excited because I've scheduled an interview in March with a company that makes the Halo dog it's a te- it's attached to a harness but i think it's called a dog collar but <clears throat> i saw this video on social media a few months ago of a dog with this little um sort of circle around its face that came off of a it's a harness and the dog was blind and so it basically like it you know the dog's walking around and if it's about to hit a wall or a door frame oh. or whatever uh-huh. It's going to, this little, you know, soft, plasticky, pliable, but but firm enough to hold the, hold the shape, mm-hmm. this little ring that comes out around the front of its head. Keeps them from bumping into it. It's like, stuff. hey, so they feel their environment with this collar rather than with their face. It's almost like a cane would act for a human. Then, totally. Oh. Totally. Great idea. Right? Well, one of my friends, um, Deb, actually, who used to screen calls I remember like that. Nine yeah. years ago, yeah, when we used to do that. Her dog, um, she has an old Boston Terrier, and he just had to have his second eye removed. Oh. So he had already had one removed. And then now he has his, n- n- both of his eyes now are gone. And so um, the company is sending Deb a, one of those collars for Spike to try. Nice. So I'm going to talk with the company about their product. And then talk with Deb about her experience with Spike and what she's noticed. And I saw Spike like a week ago, um, and she put him down out in front of our house. And I he, I totally saw him hit his face against a car because he wanted to sniff around and check things out. And then it's uh-huh. like, oh, there's the car, and you're going to find out with your face. Yeah. That's got to be, I mean, hard enough to lose your sight and then get hit in the face all the time. It's going to add so much anxiety, you know? So I'm super excited to... Uh, share with you guys about that. I saw the video of it and I thought that is brilliant. Mm-hmm. And now there's a, you know, I have someone in my life who actually gets to try that out. So as well, as we know that dogs uh, construct the the world around them in their mind, uh, a lot more with their nose than with their eyeballs. But, you know, when it comes to being up close to stuff, mm-hmm. you, you can't substitute eyeballs with a nose. Right. Or if you're newly blind, you are not, you know, there's probably going to be some getting used to. I know our guest last week was talking about her dog who recently passed away, Marvin, um, Don Ford with Seattle Barkery. Um, and he was blind. And she said he he memorized the layout of the household really fast, but it would throw him off if they moved furniture. So they would mm-hmm. try not to do that because he's like, hey, I've got this map. Anyway, interesting. Lots of good stuff coming up uh, in future shows. So I wanted to talk about uh, leadership with dogs because it's something that's very confusing in this 
largely unregulated industry of dog training and behavior. And there's a lot of uh, disagreement or ideas about things. And and it's hard because uh, every dog is different. So, you know, it's like, okay, this is... This is true. And it's like, well, maybe for some dogs or certain contexts, but, you know, so it's hard for people who don't know um, about dog behavior and training if it's not their expertise, the average dog owner. And a lot of people, you know, there's so much information online, but a lot of people end up actually more confused when they do a lot of research on their own because they just find all of this conflicting information and So I wanted to talk about this, a common conversation that I have with my clients. And there's a few main points that I want to make about um, certain things that I think are sort of um, criticisms of the conversation, the, the sort of mainstream conversation about leadership with dogs. And then also some ideas for you to clarify that as well. I think I have five main points here. The first thing about dogs and leadership is that a lot of the information that you'll read out there or hear is too general. Like, uh, and again, this is based off of conversations that I have with my clients. So I know people are thinking that these ideas are, are are they true or not? I don't know, because they ask me and they have consistently over the last 15 years of working with people and their dogs. And there's a lot of celebrity trainers that have conflicting views on these things, too. So I think a lot, yeah. a lot of these uh, ideas in the public consciousness probably come from what whatever their favorite celebrity dog guru is saying out there yeah. uh, on TV. Or, yeah. So. And then here's me yeah. adding my two cents. And, <laughs> and then I got, I'm sure, people saying that I'm wrong, too. So what do you do, huh? Well, you know, I've been listening to this show for a long time, so I trust you. Thank you, Eric. That's nice. Well, I'm basing this off of the fact that I've seen it work. And I feel like my perspective is balanced and reasonable. Mm -hmm. I'm not telling you this is the only way. That's kind of the point. Like, you can't overgeneralize, which is my first point. Look, too general. (laughs) See? He's written down. Too general. Like... Uh, so my, my, I let my dog up on the couch, but I know I'm probably not supposed to do that. Hear that all the time. No, too general. Is it a problem? Do you have a problem around with your dog's behavior around being on the couch? For example, when you go and try to sit down on the couch, if your dog is already on the couch, will they growl at you or snap? Mm-hmm. Or if you try to move your dog off the couch, will they growl at you? Or snap at you, right? So in that situation, then we may very well want to implement a no couch boundary because the dog is not being cool around the couch. But if there's no problem with it, if your dog's not doing anything bad around the couch, and as long as you have control of the space, then there's no reason to not let your dog on the couch. It's up to you. Some people don't want their dog on couches. Some people like to have their dogs on couches. So that's just you get to say what feels good for you in your home with your dog. But it's not this blanket like don't. It's bad to let your dog on the couch. Right. Too general. 
in our house, it's cats that regulate whether the dog can come <laughs> on the couch. And they say no. <laughs> Do they keep the dog off the couch? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Typical, Because huh? that's their spot. Yeah. But that doesn't stop them from taking the dog bed as soon as the dog goes up to bed. <laughs> the other bed. <laughs> yeah. Cats, cats, cats. Notice this is the dog show. That's right. Cat show. <laughs> I, cat, people who work with cat behavior, right? Different beast. Harder. Cats would be harder. For a lot of reasons. Especially hurting them. Hurting, yes. <laughs> as we all know. Hurting. H-E-R-D-I-N-G. Right. Yeah, hurting cats. I know, right? Um, okay, so too general. Like, overgeneralize. Um, dogs should never... It, it's bad for dogs to walk ahead of you on leash, or I'm supposed to go through doorways first. It's just too general of a statement. So, well, what's what's going on? What's this dog? Is your dog reactive to other dogs or people on leash? Then you're going to want to, um, you know, learn how to put structure in place. That's a dog that needs more structure in that context. If you have a dog who gets aggressive when you try to sit on the couch, then you need to put structure in place. There's something that's out of whack there for sure, and and you want to fix that. And that's something that is really best worked with somebody in person, you know. So it, it's hard. I, I've i done shows over the years, and I love doing this. And, and if you, you know, are interested in this as a possibility or want to reach out and see if it'd be a good fit, if, you know, where I've talked with people I've all over the world now on the show to try to give them at least some guidance and point them in the right direction or give, you know, but it's hard to really help with behavioral problems, especially aggression, you know, on a radio show. Because you've really got to be with the dog. I can watch videos and stuff, and that definitely helps. But as far as working with stuff like, you know, oh, gosh, my dog is aggressive over the couch. Well, I really recommend you try to find somebody in your area um, in person who's equipped to work with aggression um, and has a balanced approach. And um, and somebody that you feel is a good fit. So but if you would like to talk with me about your dog and you'd like my input about what you might be dealing with, if it's a good fit, then get in touch. You can email me at host at dogradioshow.com and that will get you directly to me host at dogradioshow.com. If you'd like to see if maybe what you're dealing with with your dog would be a good topic to share with everybody listening. Okay, too general. Sweeping general statements that may not fit you and your dog. Like I said, I think it's fine. If you want your dog on the couch, great. If it's not a problem, it's not a problem. If it's a problem, it's a problem. And then maybe you do need structure. But there's these statements about leadership and being the pack leader that are just too general. Now, be sure that you have control of these spaces. That's the biggest thing. And that is the word, kind of the key word, that comes up is sort of a thread through all of this. The, the reason why couches and beds and your lap, for example, are areas where dogs can be aggressive is because they are valuable spaces to occupy. So if you have a dog that's possessive um, and trying to control that space in particular, the reason why it's that space in particular is because it's of higher value. So you just want to make sure that you have control of it. Um, you know, make sure that your dog will move when you ask them to. Don't go out of your way to do it and be annoying and be kind of a bully about it. But just, you know, when you need your dog to move, will they move? And if they will, then it's no problem. They're fine on the couch. Every dog is different. This comes up all the time. 
Every dog is different. That's part of the reason why it's so hard to give advice about certain things because it's like, well, who's the dog? So that's the first thing. Ideas about leadership and dogs and and all that, alpha, pack leader, blah, 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 whatever the words are you want to use, are oftentimes too general. And then people are sort of applying it to their dog when it's actually not necessary. Number two, ideas out there about dogs and leadership oversimplify relationship dynamics. So, for example, the most common ones, eat first, go through doorways first, don't let your dog walk ahead of you, don't let the dog on the couch. It's like, you know, oh, my dog watches me eat breakfast before him or her, and so therefore I'm the leader. Like, it's way oversimplifying social dynamics and relationship dynamics. And dogs are highly, highly social. They're not verbal, but super social. And really keyed into uh, that type of thing. I mean, they're great teachers. I've, I've talked about this a lot over the years, and I talk about it all the time. And I love coaching people to work with their dogs because they really teach us a lot about ourselves and leadership and who we bring to the conference. To the, um, to the interaction or to the relationship. So it's sort of oversimplifying. Like if it was that simple to just be like, hey, look, I went through the doorway before you. I must be, you, you then must respect me as the leader. Like it's not that simple. It's not that easy to earn. It'd be nice if it was, I guess, but it's not. These are just isolated moments or contexts in life. And there's a disconnect when we boil down leadership like this. Your dog isn't going to look at you eating breakfast before him and think or feel, well, you're the one in charge. So, and especially when other more important aspects are out of whack. So you might have other more important, you know, your dog demands your attention in certain situations and doesn't respect your space. But then you go and eat breakfast first. That doesn't make you the leader because those other things are actually way more important. I'll talk more about those in a minute just oversimplifies things. And in doing so, really doesn't give dogs enough credit for their, you know, awareness of what you got going on, you know? Well, why why should I view you as the leader? And then again, every dog is different. So you have some dogs that just aren't really thinking about it that much. I don't really care. I just want to have a good time and cuddle, like our labs, for example. And I don't want to overgeneralize that that's how all labs are because that's not true either. But for us, our labs versus our cattle dogs are much different in that way. They're really good examples of the difference in breed and genetics. The cattle dogs are a little more, let's see, intense and require us to be more on our toes about that kind of stuff versus the labs. And it doesn't mean it doesn't come up at all. It's just, you know. So again, every dog is different. You might not, you might have a dog that just doesn't really, just wants to be easy, you know? I don't care, really. I'm not going to challenge you. Let's just have a good time and I'll be a good companion and I like everybody and blah, blah, blah. And that's great. So maybe you don't have to worry about this so much. Or maybe you have a dog that's super, really hierarchical. And this can depend on breed and genetics too. So genetically, the closer a dog is to a wolf, genetically, the more kind of, uh, in, importance they place on hierarchy. I remember talking with Dr. Jim Ha, H-A, 
is his last name. You can look that up in our archives about this very thing and that the way that a Malamute communicates and relates to hierarchy is going to be different from a poodle. Poodle being one of the breeds that's furthest away genetically from wolves and Malamute being a breed that's closer genetically to wolves. So anyway, there's a lot there, right? Hence almost 500 episodes. So, yeah, just oversimplifies. Some ideas out there, number three, some ideas out there are kind of like out of context or just off the mark. So here's one that I hear a lot. Picking up the food bowl to establish with your dog that you have control over the food. I want to be able to pick up the food bowl when my dog is eating. I don't want my dog to be aggressive around food. And so what I'm going to do is just go over and pick up the food mid-meal over and over and over and over again. Well... If that was me, and I was like, oh, my food, yes, and somebody came over. Now, again, every dog is different. If it was me with my temperament, and, you know, every time I got my food, Eric came over and took it from me and just was like, ha, I'd be like, knock, hey, like, you know. <laughs> that I'd, would not fly. I'd kind of figure <laughs> it out, and then when you started to do it again, I'd probably interrupt you and be like, don't touch my food. Rude. And you're like, oh, but I'm dominant. I'm like, no, you're not. <laughs> you're, you're, no, if, you know, obviously, Eric, you've not done this, but I'm just using you as an example. I, for me, would be like, knock it off. And what you can do is actually create possessive aggression because you're just picking up the food without showing the dog that it benefits them. So let's say every time you went into my bag and took my wallet, Eric, you added cash to it. I'd be like, cool, come on over. Did you want to look at my wallet again? Because you just put 20 bucks in there. So if you're going to do this take the food thing, like you've got to get in the dog's world about this kind of thing. You know, what is their experience? They're not robots. They're they're very highly social animals that have been living with us for 40,000 years. So a lot of this is really intuitive, but there's this disconnect with this conversation about alpha. It's like, oh, now we're dealing with a different species and I don't know. And, and I'll talk more about that in a second. So well, what's your dog's experience? Get into your dog's world. You come over, add some, and you have like turkey deli meat or cheese or, or one thing that I like is like raw goat milk. We love raw goat milk for our dogs. We give our dogs St. John Creamery raw goat milk. That's local here. But if you don't live in Western Washington, there's other brands that... Um, are more national. There's even powdered versions if you can't find it frozen or go to your farmer's market or whatever. Raw goat milk, so good. And the dogs love it. So what if you went over and approached your dog shortly after they started eating and then just poured some raw goat milk into their food? And they're like, hey, thank you. Or toss a piece of turkey deli meat or cheese or whatever. Whatever higher value than what they're eating or something extra special and delicious When you come over, your dog associates that with that they're getting something even better than what they have. So they're like, come on over. Take my bowl if you want because you're going to add something of value to it. Not just come over and take the bowl. Take the bowl. See, I can take your bowl. I'm taking your bowl. 
I want to be able to take your bowl. I'm going to take your bowl again. Depending on the temperament of the dog, if it was me, I'd be like, knock it off. And I might start growling. So careful about that kind of stuff. Don't just go over and take the bowl out of nowhere. It kind of feels like you're, well, it's a negative association, but it's like, why are you doing that? Knock it off, you know? But that's out there. I did a, a quick search before uh, this morning as just to kind of see what was out there, and that was one of the things that came up um, very quickly, and it's, again, it's something that I've talked about with clients all the time. So make sure that there's a positive association so that you're not just actually establishing yourself as a threat to food by doing that with a dog who wasn't before possessive of food. Um, you know, you're showing your dog that you have control of it, but with a positive association. So they're like, okay, cool, go ahead and do it. Um, some things also, so that that's an example of things being just a little off the mark, but significantly. Like a little bit, but significantly, you know, nah, don't just go pick up the food whenever. Go pick up the food or approach the bowl and add something of higher value. That actually is going to swing you over to the positive association of that rather than potentially creating a problem when there wasn't one. So kind of off the mark. Um, also out of context. So um, like the whole alpha role, like put the dog on the back thing. That's not something that I really generally recommend anyway. Um, it's just it's just not, you know, as far as my work with people, it just doesn't really come up. It's not something that I recommend doing. And it's something that um, as far as what you read out there, it's like out of context also. Like, oh, you just walk over for no reason and put the put your dog on their back and like, hey, look, see, I'm leader it's like well what what you know what did I do what are you doing like where did that come from you know it's like weird so it's kind of like bullying you know it's like oh hey I, I'm I'm in charge see whom and then you put the dog on their back and they're like whoa dude what you know what are you doing that's not doesn't really feel like it it um, makes much sense <laughs> there's no context to it I have done it a couple times in my life with my dogs. And the one example that I give with my clients sometimes when it fits is my yellow lab, who is a my baby, baby boy. Oh, he's got my heart. He's just sweet and he works me like crazy. And I'm totally just, he's adorable. He doesn't have an aggressive bone in his body. He can be kind of, uh, um, you know, stubborn at times, and he's definitely got personality, but he's not aggressive. He's very, very soft dog and, and all that stuff. Well, I was cutting his nails and cutting his nails year after year after year. He's six now. And as he got, you know, two, three years old, he was just getting progressively. He never liked it, but then he was getting sort of progressively more like, um, brazen about his protesting huh, you know and then he'd not just like pull his paw away but he'd huh, you know make his vocalization huh, like that huh, huh. and I'm like whatever I've got to cut your nails so just deal with it and I pretty much just ignored it and just didn't let him win I just wouldn't quit and just you know figured well maybe he'll give it up at some point and then 
you know, over time, month after month after month, and clip his nails and clip his nails again. And he was just getting progressively more gruff. And there was one time that I was cutting his nails where he sort of, like, he made his noise, his pro, you know, but he kind of did it towards me versus just out. And it just felt too much like a correction. I just knew in the moment without hesitation that that was the line and he just crossed it. And I just just put him down like, uh, you know, took him by the sort of neck um, like skin and just put him on the ground and was, you know, my version of like, don't ever do that again. And he never has. He doesn't like getting his nails cut still, but he just he's learned to tolerate it because I was just like that. If you do that again, it's not going to work well for you. So but like. That's me with expertise in dog training and behavior with my dog, who I knew that would be effective with. But to just sort of recommend that people just do that with their dog out of context and without knowing the dog, for some dogs, that could be way overwhelming and that would make them afraid. Other dogs, it might actually cause them to be aggressive back to you. So you've got to be careful about these kinds of things. But mostly about that thing is out of context, like just come out of nowhere and like, oh, just do it, like just because, and there's no context to it. Number four. Okay, so here's these last two are not so much the criticisms of um, common conversations about leadership, but kind of my my thoughts on leadership, mainly having control. It's not about eating first so much, going through doorways first, not so much about that as it really is about having control. Control of space, meaning your body, and also the space around you, like couches and beds. And dogs are extremely spatial and physical in how they relate to the world and themselves in it and to others and how they kind of see, well, how are you in relationship to me and how are we communicating? It's all very spatial and physical. So that's why a lot of this stuff comes up around space because that's a dog's, kind of the dog's world. Also controlling of your attention. That's something that comes up a lot for people, you know, trying to talk to somebody or work on your computer or something and the dog is like, hey, 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 hey. Um, And then control of resources. So you know, working with, um, you know, not letting your dog control your attention, that would be a way to establish yourself as a leader in general. Establishing space respect, that would be a way to communicate with your dog in a very organic, natural way that you are, you expect that they respect you. And it's done in a way that is sensitive and as kind as possible and fair and balanced and rational and all that stuff, but it is a boundary that is um, established. That's really how dogs view leadership. If you have control of your space, the space around you, and who you give your attention to when, you're the leader. You don't have to worry about the other stuff, the little detail stuff. And then the other part of it is, you know, there's a lot about the dogs, like leadership with dogs. And we talk about dogs and dogs and dogs and dogs. But when we're talking about leadership with dogs, we're talking about you. Who, like, how are you being with your dog? Why should your dog view you as the leader? How's your presence? Are you calm and confident? 
Easier said than done. I understand that. But it's true. Is your presence that of a leader? Are you reactive? Does your dog make you react? That's not the presence of a leader. Leaders respond thoughtfully. Now, you have to have tools and you have to know what to do in order to do that. And so if you don't feel like you, you're in that space, then ask for help. You know, ask for help from a professional. I have these conversations all the time with people. It's hard to be calm and confident when you don't know what you're doing, you know. Um, body language. You know, I said dogs are very physical, spatial, and energetic communicators. So being aware of your body language, relationship with your body, um, boundaries. I recently did a show about this. This is a doozy for people. Your emotional relationship with boundaries. Do you feel guilty when you set boundaries with your dog? Are you afraid your dog won't love you if you set a boundary with your dog? That's messy and they feel that and that's not going to establish you as the leader. So there's a lot there. I've done other shows in the past about this topic and I will continue to do shows about this topic. And as I said before, if you'd like to reach out and see if uh, what you're working with with your dog would be a good fit to have you on the show and talk with me on air. Email me host at dogradioshow.com. We're going to take a quick break and we'll come back talking with Hope Animal Assisted Crisis Response. And now back to the dog show with Julie Forbes. Welcome back to the Dog Show with Julie Forbes. And we are back now with Melanie Dunbar, who's the president of Hope Animal Assisted Crisis Response. Melanie, welcome to the Dog Show. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, so, you know, uh, I just thought this as a sort of very specific type of therapy dog... Um, and kind of talking about the wonderful work that you do in, in hard work and powerful work, uh, you know, helping workers in, and people who are around these disaster areas or crisis areas and providing comfort to them. Um, but tell us a bit about hope and kind of this, this, um, you know, animal assisted crisis response industry. How long has it been around? Um, got its roots in about 1998 um, when our founder, Cindy Ellers, responded with her um, therapy dog, Bear, to a school shooting in Colorado mm-hmm. at Thurston High School. And she responded with another therapy team, but realized out of this that um, to be able to be ready to respond to crises and disasters, that both ends of the leash, the dog and the handlers, needed more training mm. And what therapy dogs um, are provided and also required special qualities, too, above and beyond what a typical therapy team would. So she really was the forefront of the development of animal-assisted crisis response and the training that prepares teams for that. Yeah. And so just to clarify for listeners, because this is something that people get confused a lot, and I just sort of brought this up in the world of assistance dogs and guide dogs in our last segment because people say that it's a therapy dog or it's a service dog, and this sort of those things are interchanged, and there right. are two completely separate categories. Thera- well, and that's an exciting thing because, like, uh, animal assisted crisis response is kind of a, a whole different thing, right. too, um, because 
in their other work, like our dogs all have to be therapy dogs um, for a year before they become eligible to even go through the screening process. Mm. So separate from that, but also, yeah, very different role from the other dogs we see out there, whether they're search and rescue dogs or service dogs, detection dogs. So people often ask a lot of questions and kind of um, have a hard time wrapping their mind around it because it's a newer field, even though as Hope, we have been around almost 15 years. Yeah. So what is the, you know, as you talk about, and I think this is particularly interesting for me, the, you know, therapy dogs are where people, you know, have their dogs and they go to like a children's hospital with their dog or like a, um, uh, like senior, um, like visit like seniors in senior housing or like nursing homes and go and, and, and have like a sort of therapeutic interaction where the person and their dog are a team and they're providing the sort of service to, not to use that word, but um, to someone else as opposed to... Absolutely. And um, in those situations, like uh, my my partner Gus and I, we do hospice work. We volunteer to rehab hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, we have been part of uh, grief programming locally mm-hmm. in terms of our therapy work. Um, but therapy work is pretty predictable. We go to the same places. You know, there's not a lot of unexpected things happening necessarily, you know. Yeah. It's a place that we're familiar with. Usually we have support from staff there. Mm-hmm. Um, the travel is very, you know, limited yeah. um, generally to get there. It only lasts a maximum of two hours. Mm-hmm. So very different from the demands of crisis work, which could be traveling by various modes of transportation. When we were at Hurricane Sandy, we traveled on an uh, emergency response vehicle because they weren't letting vehicles in. They were limiting the amount of um, cars and trucks that were going onto the areas. Yeah. Rode on an emergency response vehicle. So our dogs have to be prepared for that. They have to be prepared for the stimulation that they encounter. We expose our dogs to all kinds of emergency equipment mm-hmm. um, and emergency personnel. Um, we do a lot of training with fire and police and things like that. So our dogs are used to that, um, the sounds, the scents, mm-hmm. um, all of that, the visuals, so that they're not, um, they'll become overly stressed in that situation. It becomes, you know, more routine to them. So we spend a lot of time on working on that through counter conditioning, desensitization, things like that, because mm-hmm. we are always taking care of our partner and we don't want them to be overstressed. Sure. And, and then also in terms of working with the people, you have yeah. a higher level intensity of emotions. Well, I was going to say, you guys have to probably go through extra training yourselves to be familiar with the sort of scene in a disaster type situation. Absolutely. Um, we do a lot of psychological first aid training, mm. um, which we're kind of the front lines there. We're not there to provide counseling. We're there to provide comfort and support to these individuals affected. Yeah. Um, you know, we're that intervention, or we can be that bridge, too. You have people who open up when um, you're, they come in contact with your dog and start talking about what's going on, and being able to support them in that yeah. is important. We help our handlers be comfortable dealing with people in those traumatic situations. Mm-hmm. 
And then also you have people who just want to hug your dog and aren't ready to talk, and that's okay too, you know. Mm -hmm. So being where they are and working on that on the handler end and also helping the dogs too in terms of um, just getting used to that different intensity level and and, um, being prepared for that. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, we we spend a lot of of time working on that. Each team has to be screened. It's about a a two-and-a-half-hour test evaluation that they go through and at that point then would go through our three-day certification workshop which is really intensive there's a lot of training on working in the incident command structure and like i said working with folks in trauma and crises also us taking care of our dog handling skills canine stress management yeah things like that that we need to be much more on top of Um, but we also do a lot of hands-on stuff we do a fire exposure we do an airport TSA exposure um, during the course of that. There's a lot of hands-on engagement to practice the skills as well. Yeah, and I think it's important to you know point out that you have a screening process for dogs who are already therapy dogs, right? And that I assume there's a reason in that <clears throat> not all dogs pass the screening process. You know, that it's there for a reason and that there's a lot of reasons that a dog who might be a wonderful therapy dog won't, is not cut out for this kind of work. Exactly. Exactly. And that is not a negative reflection. It's just, yeah. um, for example, I'm training my second dog right now. And if it was too stressful for him, I would not want to put him in that situation. That's not fair to these dogs. Let them do, um, and the work at the level that they're comfortable with yep. and shine at, you know, so that therapy work is so important. But yeah, you need a dog who is easily um, resilient yeah. to the stressors and stimulation, who enjoys kind of that more stimulating, chaotic environment. Yeah. Um, so a whole different thing, because um, if they get overwhelmed, it's hard for them to, to do their job. Yeah. And even so. and even those dogs who 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 are great a great fit for the work, you know, you still have to be sensitive to them because it's still stressful. And so, you know, I'm sure that there's things that the teams do to kind of take care of your ability so that it's sustainable because anybody can burn out. Absolutely, we stress with our teams both, like I said, at both ends of the leash, um, in terms of taking breaks. Pacing mm-hmm. yourself. We have team leaders who are folks without dogs mm-hmm. who kind of take care of the teams and will say, okay, you and Gus need a break, you know, yep. and direct you to kind of set that because your dog will want to keep working and we want to keep working. You know, that's your natural instinct. Yeah. So having to be really vigilant to, to take those regular breaks and we're constantly watching our, our partner for signs of stress yeah. so we can intervene. We know our dogs inside and out and they know us inside now mm-hmm. so we have to watch their stress and then watch our own because obviously they feed off of that mm-hmm. um, both the dog and we are feeding you know are absorbing the um emotions of the situation yep. so being very on top of that to remain effective so what do you do in your breaks for example like to like especially kind of from the perspective of to relieve the dog what sort of things do you go play or just go for a walk or just hang out and be quiet or does it probably depends on the team absolutely it depends on the team we have some who it's a game of of ball yep (laughs) we have some who do nose work Mm. um 
I have a very non-drivey dog. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he just wants some down and cuddle time and just, you know, a little quiet, you know. So it just it does depend on the team. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times we find, because if we are even visible, people want to engage with our dogs. Right. <laughs> so we often find we really have to remove ourselves, you know, to be able to get that. Yeah, we're talking with Melanie Dunbar, who is the president of Hope Animal Assisted Crisis Response. The website is hopeaacr.org, and you can find them on Facebook, and you can find the link to their site, if you can't write it down right now, on our homepage, which is dogradioshow.com, and I'll also post a link to them on our Facebook page as well. So we're talking about animal-assisted crisis response, which is a different level of sort of therapy dog training where these dogs and and handlers are going into um, disaster areas or crisis areas like school shooting kind of thing um, and providing... Melanie, how would you word that, of providing comfort and support? Or how do you, you know, how do you word that? Our actual mission statement is that um, we provide comfort and encouragement through animal-assisted support to those impacted by crises and disasters. Mm. We are the, that you know, that emotional support in these situations because everybody else has their role. We're just another niche yeah. and need, you know, in these situations, whether it's those affected or first responders. Mm-hmm. So right now we have 154 teams in 23 states. We're getting ready to start our next workshop certification cycle, so that will have us grow even more. Um, on our website, you can also see our 877 number. Mm-hmm. Anybody can request our services. They make that phone call um, and get connected with us. Okay. And um, your organization is all volunteer. Correct. We are an all-volunteer, including the board, the officers, our regional directors who manage our five regions in terms of operations. Mm-hmm. Um, our Pacific Northwest regional director has obviously been very busy recently. Yeah. Um, so these people are very dedicated and do it just out of a passion yeah. for the work we do. Yep. You know, And it's just so inspiring to me to work with these folks who are, who are so dedicated. What are some of the um, like national... Um, types of like disasters or crisis situations that Hope has been to? Um, 9-11. Uh-huh. Um, we had four teams that responded to that. That was at the very beginning yeah. um, of what we did because we actually became incorporated under the name at that point, even though we'd been around since 98. Um, so, and also the 10-year anniversary, we had teams go back. We had two dogs who actually responded back when it happened, who were able to come to the 10-year anniversary, which is exciting. Mm. But unfortunately, all of our dogs who responded have now passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, Hurricane Katrina, we responded to um, the Virginia Tech shooting incident. Mm-hmm. Um, Hurricane Sandy, the Washington Navy Yard. Recently, we spent seven weeks involved out there. Mm. Um, and the loss of the 19 firefighters in Arizona. Mm-hmm another example and sometimes we pull in multiple regions for big responses like that because some of them stretch out like we've been involved since march 23rd in washington here um and are continuing to respond currently so teams have been rotating in and out we've pulled teams from 
the Pacific Southwest region and the Rocky Mountain region as well to respond to meet the need. So we did that with these other large-scale call-outs as well. Yeah. And so it's amazing just to see the response of people, and it can be anywhere from that deep emotional release to just bringing a bright spot in the midst of all mm-hmm. the stress and trauma going on. Mm-hmm. Um, we really saw that in hurricanes. When we responded to Hurricane Sandy, we responded at the FEMA centers, and also as they reopened neighborhoods, we went in. We had partnered with the Salvation Army at that point, and we went with the trucks that went around with the food and the drinks and the cleaning supplies, mm-hmm. and were able to bring a bright spot to some of these folks that were assessing their homes. Yeah. Um, and having to get rid of almost all these belongings that had been there for generations. Yeah. Since most of the homes had been family-owned over several generations. And so sometimes it was very emotional. And then sometimes it was Gus doing tricks. Right, <laughs> and just, right. You know, yeah. the response. And we were able to help connect. Like, people came out to see the dogs and then went and used the, the resources of Salvation Army, got a drink, got some snacks. Right. Got work gloves trash bags, you know, so, and I've really seen it also with, we've done a lot of um, military response. Um, We responded to Fort Dix when they had uh, eight battalions returning, which was the largest since 1941, Mm -hmm. and we were there with the families waiting, you know, because it's hurry up and wait and things keep changing. Right. Several hour process, so we were there with them. And then also when the troops actually came in. So that was really awesome on so many levels mm-hmm. to be there to support the families. And we became obsolete for the ones that had families waiting as soon as right. you know, they returned. But then we had a battalion that did not, was not local and did not have family oh, bringing yeah. them. Uh-huh. So it became really amazing um, to watch the dogs connect with them and then just get the sense of mm. that comfort and connection and affection, you know, that um, to welcome them home. So yeah. that was neat. And it's amazing. We say our dogs have seeing hearts. And that crowd of 6,000 people over the course of that, it seemed like, you know, our dogs know who needs them. Mm. And part of what we train is letting them do the work. You know, you can't train that mm-hmm. temperament or that desire, but they seem to know, you know, where the need is and, and who needs approach. Well, it's I'm just, looking at your website, which, again, is hope. AACR.org. I'll post a link to it on our homepage, dogradioshow.com. And you can also find them on Facebook, Hope Animal Assisted Crisis Response. And I'm looking at all of the photos that are scrolling through on your homepage. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's there's all different types of dogs, purebred, mixed breed, little dogs, big dogs. And, yep. you know, what you just said um you know, there's the training and then there's what you can't train and that it's it's really these dogs that have the heart to do the work and and, you know, in this specific way. And um, it's just like you said, I mean, how you're really speaking to that these dogs know what they're there for. Absolutely. And yeah. it's just, you know, without sometimes even telling them or directing them, sometimes we just have to work to not get in their way. Yeah. You know, they know what they're doing, and it's amazing to watch them mm. interact and provide that comfort, and we just support that. And, you know, it's it's just awesome. I'm excited. We're doing our Eastern Region certification workshop the first weekend in May, and I just love that to watch these new teams develop and, and you know, them learn the ins and outs of this and to watch the dogs blossom and, you know, um, it's so exciting. 
So, mm. like, my dog is, is a mutt. He came from a rescue, and um, I knew I wanted to do therapy work with him mm-hmm. because of my profession. And then it was just amazing once we started doing it and I learned about this type of work, I really saw, you know, the, the gifts that he could bring to that, you know. So, yep. yeah, it's just we, we see these dogs that are just, that have that special heart for it. Yeah. So I'm seeing, um, you know, of course, some Goldens and Labs and then like Jack Russell. <laughs> Absolutely. We have Newfoundlands. We have Chihuahuas. Yeah, I see some Shih Tzus <laughs> um, in there. We have the whole gamut. <laughs> cool. Never know, too, what we need all kinds because you never know what kind of dog is going to sure. draw somebody in, right? Yeah. So if you, you know, some people like small dogs and some situations are more appropriate for that. Yeah. For Sandy, obviously, we took mostly larger furrier dogs because it was November yeah. and it was on the ocean and it's yep. very, we were outside for six hours at a yeah. time. Good job for a newfie. That's right. Yeah. Well, I want to, I want to golden chow mix. He absolutely just loved it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> like, this is my kind of weather. All right. We well, wouldn't send our greyhound or a chihuahua right. into that necessarily. It's always right. looking at what's the right fit for the situation, need. And that's what our regional directors kind of do. They assess when we get a call. Mm-hmm. Okay you know, what the needs are, what is being asked for, because that's what we always want to say. What do you need from us? Yeah. Well, we are out of time, Melanie, and I want to make sure I give out your website and give out all your information. So if people are interested in getting involved or supporting your organization, again, it's hopeaacr.org. I'll post links to it everywhere that I can. You can find them on Facebook. Um, such great work. Of course, as you can hear, I could sit here and talk to you for hours longer, but unfortunately we don't have it. Thank you so much for your time today and just sharing your stories and the wonderful work that you do. And again, hopeaacr.org. If you've missed any of our episodes over the years, you can find them all as a free download from iTunes. Just search for The Dog Show with Julie Forbes audio podcast. I post all of our episodes to our Facebook page. As always, you can find all of our shows archived on our website, dogradioshow.com. Thanks for listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. You've been listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes, Wednesday afternoons at 2 on Alternative Talk, 1150 a.m. Never miss another episode. Listen to our podcast online at dogradioshow.com.